Welcome to All Things Beer, a Pat's Pints Mark's Mugs podcast. I'm Pat Woodward. And I'm Mark Richards. Each month, we are joined by brewers, enthusiasts, and friends to explore the techniques, the culture, and the history of mankind's best invention. So grab a beer and join us as we discover a world of all things beer. Well, Happy New Year, Mark. Hey. It's a little late, frankly, for the Happy New Year's, you know? A statute of limitations. It's kind of run out on the new year. Three days. Plenty. Three days. Once you're past three days of the new year, you're just in the year. Okay. Uh, it checks out. That. Well, moving on, I've noticed when I was looking at our download statistics that we've been getting an unusually high number of downloads from Colombia. Oh, look at that. We're big in Colombia, huh? Well, I've always wanted that. But seriously, if there is a real person in Colombia who's uh, downloading this or real people, hey, let us know. And if you like what you listen to here, and you probably have since you're so many episodes in, you know, like us on whatever, you know, iTunes, Google, Sketcher, whatever you listen to, rate us on it. Yeah, it helps for other people to find us. And, you know, a lot of podcasts say that right out, but this is like episode 40-something or another. I think this is the first time we've ever said that. Yeah, well, you know, we barely like ourselves, let alone <laughs> have other people like us. But please do it. Just take a minute now. Push pause. Like, I don't know if you have to subscribe, unless you already have. But if you're listening to this, you probably already have. All right. Well, today's episode I am super excited about. We're going to be talking not so much about a specific style of beer, but rather a specific way of serving and dispensing the beer. And t- packaging. Yes, that's right. We're going to talk about cask ales. Now, what's a cask ale, Mark? Well, a cask ale is defined by camera would be a real ale would have to be naturally carbonated in the vessel. You tap in your tap. And then there's a spile that goes in that allows oxygen to get in in most cases. Actually, Nick turns this on to a device that eliminates the problem for oxygen, but we'll hold that off for the podcast. So that's all it is. You can hand pump that. You can pour it by gravity. It's really probably the way that beer was served a long, long time ago, widely. But now, at least in the United States, at least in central Ohio, pretty hard to find. Only three or four places here. We'll call it locally, although you probably want to charge your electric car. Well, one of the things that we learn in this episode is that Barley's has a cascale on all the time now. All the time. I had one last night before the Blue Jackets game. That's our hockey team here in Columbus, Ohio. And that's just really a great thing that you can just go down there and get it anytime. I have to say, it's kind of like a speakeasy because it's just not that obvious. It's when not you on go, the menu, which is weird. I mean, it's just at the very bottom of the menu and it doesn't say anything on the menu board. So you heard it here. Go down to Barley's and get yeah. yourself a nice hand pull of Russian Imperial Stout. Or what did yeah. you have last night? I had the Scottish. Oh, and beautiful. shout out to Jason and Angelo down there. Put this shit on the menu. How are people <laughs> supposed to know? Unless you're saving it all for me, which is also okay. Well, that's okay. Other places that you can get Cascale around Central Ohio, you can get great Cascale up in Delaware, Ohio at Stoss Brewing. We proved that last weekend. Poured out of the sparkler. Really yeah, nice. They had yeah. a great pub ale up there. I guess would be a stock standard ESB they had on tap. Yeah. And it's not one of these things where they're infusing it with weird shit or anything like yeah. that. Just straight up nice English cascale. And then the other place that I know about would be on Fridays at Granville Brewing Company in Granville. They've now got a cascale program. And so that's another place you can go. 
Yeah, never been there. And if you're in the UK, well, just go down the corn pub and get it. You can get it almost anywhere. That's right. Let's introduce our guests today and then get into the interviews because they're great interviews. Our first guest, you've known him longer than I have, Mark. Yes, Angelo Signorino. One of our favorite guests. Yeah, does that make Nick our second favorite guest? (laughs) Nah, we'll call them equals. Yeah, and the other one would be Nick Smith, who is the founder and head brewer at Steam Machine Brewing in County Durham, up in the northeast of England. The land of Cascales, you might say, but Nick's brewery, Steam Machine, doesn't do Cascales, really. No. But he's our British correspondent, so we wanted to get his perspective on it, and I think it's very interesting. I think it's great. Let him rage against the machine a little bit. Well, Nick's good at that. It's his best character. (laughs) One last thing before we get to the interviews, a couple of terminology surrounding Cascales. We've got the vessel in which it's stored, which is typically a firkin. Yes. Firkin is nine imperial gallons or 10.8 US gallons. 10.8, that's right. Yeah, Yeah. And then if you have half a firkin, a vessel half the size. What's that called, Mark? Now, the math on that would be 5.4 gallons. 5.4 gallons or 4.5 imperial gallons. And that would be called a pin. That's right. And the one other thing, maybe many people know, but the sparkler. What's the sparkler, Mark? We're going to learn about this. All All right. Well, let's get to it. All right, Angelo. What's up, buddy? Great to have you join us again. Happy to be back. And this time, we are talking about cask ales. And nobody's been doing cascales for longer in Columbus than Barley's. Well, it was pretty hard carrying that cask on my bicycle, but it was worth it. <laughs> <laughs> for us, it was, yeah. <laughs> if I could give credit where credit is due, the owner of Barley's, who's passionate about beer, who's no longer affiliated, had this vision for Barley's. He said that he had this idea of setting a cask of beer on the bar and pounding a spigot in it and serving it directly from the cask. And what the heck are you talking about, dude? (laughs) Yeah. It's a pretty foreign concept to an American, right? Mm -hmm. And after a few years there and talking to him about it, I thought we could work our way there. The components needed to do that kind of thing weren't readily available when we first started. So I took a different plan and and got a beer engine, hydraulic pump, Cool. Mm -hmm. the beer from the cask. And this was just before... Traditional British firkins and pins became available. And to me, the obvious solution was to use Hoff Stevens kegs, the old school kegs that have a bunghole in the side, that were converted to Sankey valves, which is pretty universal in the United States. And I ordered them from a company in Toledo that was kind enough to take out the stem and shorten it a bit so that we didn't suck the sediment from the cask. Cool. Lenny and I conspired to do this entirely without the brewmaster, the legendary pioneer, Scott Francis, knowing about it. And I brewed an ESB, which is Scott's favorite style and was one of my favorites, inspirational style from the Fuller's Brewery who exemplified Mm -hmm. it. And I did this because that summer Scott traveled a lot. We both traveled a lot. And got as many jobs at as many breweries as we could because no brewery needed either of us full time. And in his absence, I brewed a batch of ESB and I ordered the beer engine. I got the uh, Hoff Stevens kegs and I asked Scott, if you were going to cast condition ale here at Barley's, 
where would you put the cask? He said, <laughs> we couldn't do that. The owners would never go for it. <laughs> <laughs> so I managed to do it underneath High Street in those arches oh, in the cool. basement. Hell yeah. Okay. yeah. And I hid them from him. I think it was our second annual Afternoon with the Brewers in 1996. He let the other brewmasters talk, and he talked. And then I interrupted and said, wait, can I say something? And I had the beer engine attached to the bar in the underground next to a kegerator where the cask was and said, I managed to do this. I've got cast conditioned J. Scott Francis ESB ready to go. <laughs> <He's> like, what? <laughs> and that was our first cask. That's great. The next year, we found a source for Firkins, filled our first Firkin, which we set on the bar. And it was a Firkin of our Centennial IPA, which might have been the first IPA ever brewed in Columbus. And it was wonderful. It was perfect. I never would have thought it would have turned out so good. In 97, I was lucky enough to do some contract work at a brewery in Belgrade, Montana. I'm from out that way, Belgrade. Yeah, that's a good place. And uh, Scott went out there to brew, and I went to filter. And it was cheaper to get a plane ticket from Columbus to Seattle and then at Seattle to Bozeman than than it was to try to fly from Columbus to Bozeman. Okay. So my wife and I flew to Seattle. We had lunch at the Pike Market. Nice. At the Pike Place Brewery. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. Charlie Finkel from Marchand de Van gave us a tour. Man, okay, nice. And he had to leave because he was delivering a keg in the sidecar of his motorcycle that (laughs) said, meet the brewer on it. But I got to meet Fal Allen, who was the brewer there, and taste his cask ale. Then I went to Montana, worked, climbed a mountain, went back to Seattle, and tasted more Cascale wherever I could. They were ahead of us in Columbus. And I thought, well, I'm headed in the right direction. Later that year, my wife and I went to England and Scotland, and I got to see more Cascale. I thought, I'm on the right track. When we got to Edinburgh, it was totally unplanned. We happened to get there at the same time as their Cascale Festival. Okay, cool. It was outdoors. They had wet cheesecloth on the casks to keep them cool. Yeah. And it was glorious talking to Scottish brewers about their casks and how they do it. Even later that year, we entered the National Cask Ale Competition in Chicago at the Real Ale Festival, organized by Ray Daniels. We took our Russian Imperial Stout and our Old Ale, Old Curiosity. I filled both casks at the same time, and then I thought, wait, which one's which? <laughs> I hope I label them correctly. Yeah. Yeah. I was sweating, yeah. but I did label them correctly, <laughs> and I was sweating. Russian Imperial Stout won a gold medal. Oh, great. Old Curiosity, I think, won a bronze or a silver. It was a great experience, and it was so nice to see the enthusiasm behind the organizers of the festival when they drank that Russian Imperial Stout, because there was a limit in Ohio. We could only make beer in the 90s that was 6% by weight, 76 by volume. And that's not having one hand tied behind your back, but it gives other breweries an unfair advantage because with higher alcohol, you can get more complexity and and richness. That was wonderful. We entered multiple times. Russian Imperial Stout always won a gold medal. But in 2001, Old Curiosity won a silver or bronze, I don't remember, but that put it into a new best of show judging, which resulted in Old Curiosity getting awarded Best American Ale at the National Cascale Competition. 2001's a lifetime ago. Well, but it still 
fun to brag about. <laughs> for, yeah, right. For, for some of us, it's only half a lifetime ago, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, for my son, it's a lifetime ago. And yes, I, yes I, I understand that. I understand that. For some people listening, that will be the entirety of their life. But let me ask a couple questions. First of all, for the homebrewers who are listening to this show, they'll know you ferment a beer, you, you condition it. But if you're going to make a cask, how how does that work? I mean, do you put it into the cask and then with a certain amount of fermentation left to go? Or do you put it in when it's fully fermented and then you add sugar? Or how do you do that? I like to get it at the very tail end of fermentation. Okay. It's not completely done. There's plenty of yeast still in suspension. And one of the things about our house yeast, which I talked about in the last episode, that we like is that when it's done it drops out. It settles to the bottom of whatever vessel it's in, fermenter, cask, and results in a relatively bright beer. That, to the British, is important. When we first started doing it, we were visited at Barley's by a famous band called Fairport Convention. Oh, yeah. My, yeah um, Richard Thompson, and for example. That was yeah, after yeah. he left. But, but, but still, 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 that's like uh, yeah, yeah. one of the, that's Iconic. probably the most famous um, British uh, folk band right now. And, they said, what's wrong with your beer? Why is it, why is it cloudy? <laughs> and it's not easy to get a bright cask ale. Yeah. We experimented with eyes and glass and didn't pursue it. It doesn't have to be bright, but it's nice when it is. And these days, people like cloudy beer. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Angela, you fit right in now. <laughs> don't, let's not get Mark started. Let's get the, the hipsters uh, in here. Eyes and glass. And I don't know if people know what eyes and glass is. It's the bladder of a sturgeon that is added to finished beer and it has a magnetic charge that pulls proteins to the bottom of the container and it's pretty easy to imagine how somebody many many years ago had some beer tried to figure out how they were going to move it from place to Mm -hmm. place Ooh, there's this bladder. I'm going to put the beer in there. (laughs) (laughs) And they put the cloudy beer in the bladder and they go to drink it. It's, It's bright. I don't want to monopolize the conversation too much, but we at Barley's were lucky enough to replace our entire draft system this summer after 30 years. I clean the system religiously, but equipment needs to be replaced probably more frequently than that. And we put in a new beer engine. Our old one wasn't functional. And uh, the first beer that we served from it was our Scottish ale. Right now we have a really nice cask of Russian Imperial Stout, but to Mark's chagrin, the next one is Hazy IPA. That's all right. (laughs) Yeah. I don't have to drink all the beer. Going back to the ale festivals, I mean, that's a big thing. And there's the great British beer festival. And then there's also then the real ale festival. I think that it doesn't exist anymore, does it? It was organized by the supremely talented Ray Daniels. And this is somewhat tragic. His wife gave him an ultimatum, either give up the festival or give up me. And oh, he geez. gave up the festival. Boy, <laughs> he gave up the festival okay. and right. still got divorced. Oh, but man. Made the went, wrong choice. He went on to start the Cicerone program, which has educated so many people in the beer industry to become so sophisticated, able to describe beer, able to judge beer in a way mm-hmm. that didn't exist previously. Yeah. How many years did you enter and how many years did you go as a judge? I only judged once. And that was in 1998, and that year we didn't win any awards. It might have been the only year we didn't win any awards. But I had the honor of judging next to the probably premier beer writer 
at the time, if not ever, well, Michael ever. Jackson, <laughs> yeah. who was the first person to really treat beer like wine. Yeah, what an honor. And uh, it was really nice to get to know him, albeit briefly. It was amazing how we had the same tasting notes that might conflict with other judges, but because it was Michael Jackson, we were often deferred to. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he literally wrote the book, right? Yeah. yeah. Multiple books. Yes, he yeah. did. But the barley wine haunts me to this day from a brewery, I think, in Virginia. It was called oh, something beard. Beer. Oh, dang. I should have this on the top of my head. But it was a wonderful barley wine. And it was a standoff between he and I and three other judges. And because it was him. That beer yeah. won the best part of sure, sure, yeah. <laughs> Well, how, how can you argue with Michael Jackson? Right? Pat, I yeah. think it was called. <laughs> I, I'll have to check my notes. <laughs> Pat, your beard's coming in. <laughs> it is, I, I've been working on it. I've been working on one. What kind of beers are best on cask? I'm, I'm going to preface this by saying that when I was in England, I had some really wonderful very hop forward beers that if you put them in a bottle or a can would be called American IPAs, probably. What do you think are the best beers that come out on the cask? I'm going back to the style that I did first. ESB is glorious. Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, no, no argument there for sure. It is glorious, but stouts are wonderful. Mm-hmm. And old ales. When I was in York, I had a cask old peculiar. Nice. And that was as memorable as any beer I've had in my life. I'm going to interrupt yeah. for a minute to say, when I was living in the UK, I went to Theakston's many times. Mm-hmm. It was always a stop. Like, if someone came to visit, so we're going to go to Theakston's. I got to join on one of those yeah. ventures. And to go to Theakston's and get the, uh, you know, they, they age it in wood and they serve it on the casket, that old peculiar is just it's a fantastic beer. And that's what inspired the old curiosity. Yeah. That- yeah, that's cool. Oh, it's so good, too. And when you have it in the bottle here in the U.S., it's not the same thing. Carbonation, it can be distracting. It's acidic. It's prickly. Mm-hmm. And it's nice to get that softness like we did in that Bellhaven that allows you to taste the malt and the, the complexities without being distracted by the prickly acidity of CO2. I mean, if you've ever drank plain tap water and carbonated water, I mean, that would give you a perspective, yeah. if you're not a beer person, how much the CO2 can change the character of the beer. Yeah. As I get older, and I don't think this is unique to me, you can only take so much CO2 at a time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's very filling and uh, can have consequences. Now, what's the current status of cask ale at Barley's? We ha- we are so happy to keep our cask program backed up. The Russian Imperial Stout right now, I didn't dry hop it. I didn't add any infusions. It's just pure Russian Imperial Stout. It conditions so beautifully that we don't use the sparkler on it. With it. We don't need to, and nor did we need to use the sparkler on the Scottish that we had previously. But... Sometimes the beer isn't lively enough to cascade right out of the beer engine, so you'll use that sparkler to, to give that effect, and it's as much visual, and certainly we drink and eat with our eyes to some extent. Now, I know we're going to talk about this sparkler quite a bit throughout this episode, I'm sure, but I really enjoy the beer on the sparkler. When I was over there in the UK, 
I found that to the north is more with the sparkler, right? Yeah. Go to the south, it's more direct pour. And I really enjoy that. And it does remind you of the Bellhaven, the, you know, the nitro. Or draft Guinness yeah, or any exactly. Other. I love that creaminess. And it really breaks that CO2 out in a very special way. Now, for a long time, Barley's had the Firkin Fridays, and that was a gravity pour cask. When we started it, you could still smoke in bars. And my biggest concern was because we don't put CO2 in to displace the volume taken away when you pour, cigarette smoke's going into that cask. It's going to be oh, terrible. Marlboro. But it, it, it wasn't noticeable. I can't, okay. I can't imagine. <laughs> so here's a question, Angelo. I love cascales. I know Mark loves cascales. I think we all, everybody in this room loves cascales. But it would be fair to say that cascales have not set the world on fire in the U.S. When was the last time you had a cascale? Your place? Uh, well, probably at Stoss, maybe about a year ago. So the question is, like, what do you think would be needed to bring cascales to the fore, or is it possible in the U.S.? I think a really good podcast would help. Yeah, I think so. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we, also, we're... we could kill all the hazy IPA drinkers. <laughs> the last cask I had was on Martin Luther King Day weekend this year in Chicago with the Revolution Brewing Company, yeah. and it was a really nice IPA nice. with experimental hops, and it was absolutely delightful. I only had one beer while I was there, but I don't see cask ale often, no, and I'm not going to pass it. it up when I'm given the opportunity. When I worked at Smokehouse Brewing Company, and they had their mini real ale festival, about the same time that all the breweries started opening in Columbus, I convinced a brewer who was just starting and super confident that a cask would be a great thing for him to do for our brewery. I said, now when you prime it, don't overdo it. An ounce, maybe a little more than an ounce of dextrose would be great for priming your cask. And I convinced him to do it. And he he followed the advice he got on the internet instead of <laughs> Oh boy. Mine. Oh and boy. That's the where whole this cask is went down the drain. And that was really precious to him because yeah. he was pilot brewing at the time. It's risky. You're making a living thing in a container that isn't sealed. And if your vessel gets so pressurized that the bung goes out onto the floor, you lose all that beer. Yeah. And it's a finite amount of beer, but all beer is precious. Oh, yeah. What's the level you can carbonate a uh, cascale to? I like to shoot for at most two volumes of okay, CO2. Yeah. Well, thank you, Angelo. It's been a pleasure to it's have you on again. Always, it is always great to have you. It's always nice to hang out with you guys, whether we're on mic or not. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> cheers. Good cheers. to see you. Well, I've let Nick know that we're going to give him a buzz, so let's go ahead and get him on the phone over in the UK and discuss Cascales a little further. Hey, it's great to see you. It's good. Thanks for having me back. How's life been? Yeah, life's been good, man. Yeah, really good. How about you oh, two? good. Yeah, can't complain. Mark, are you completely free of the land grants? I am. I'm a free man. It's run its course. 
do you feel better for oh, it? Yes, yes, indeed. BBIG. I do feel better. Yeah, good. Mark's been getting back into the home brewing. Oh brewed, yeah, he brewed this morning. Oh. And what was temperature outside, Mark? It was like minus seven C. It was cold. <laughs> Hardcore. It's meant to snow here tonight. Oh so. really? Okay. Yeah, we forecast snow for about an hour's time. So whether it will or not is another sure, thing. Sure. Sure. Well, getting on topic of camera and real ales, we just talked to Angelo quite a bit about it. He's a brewer here in town. He's been brewing over at Barley's, which is kind of a classic brew pub that we both enjoy. And Angelo is a good friend of ours. He has a cask, so he does have one of the very few here in Columbus where you can get that. Oh, really? You can also, up in Delaware, you can get a cask pull. And we actually went up there last Friday night at Stoss Brewing to enjoy a few. They just had kind of a standard ESB on, which was lovely. And then that's with the sparkler. Angelo does it with and without the sparkler, depending on the beer. And he knows I like the sparkler, so when he sees me coming, he throws it on. There's a big north and south divide on the sparkler. Oh, yeah. And, and yeah, and it's like the north is pro-sparkler and the south is anti-sparkler. Yeah, now where do you fall on that? I kind of with Angelo, is beer dependent. I think sometimes you can pull a beer through a hand pull and it will have a lovely fluffy head without sparkler anywhere because it's slightly higher condition. Okay. Whereas other times, if it's a slightly lower carbonate beer, pulling it through the sparkler does wonders for its appearance it like knocks more of the condition out and then you, you end up with that lovely velvety fluffy top so if i was forced to choose i would definitely have the sparkler but it's not always cut and dry Do you have a notion why there's a north south divide in the uk on that historically you had regional breweries right and they would provide to their local area and they, you also have their tide pubs so i think just in terms of some of the big breweries like Bass, who are, you know, Burton-based, but they had a lot of pubs tied and owned all over the north of England. And they would have a sparkler actually built into the dispense so that you couldn't be tampered with. It was kind of like an earlier version of Guinness and stuff rolling out a draft system that works one set way. Yeah. And actually, Dr. Charlie Bamford. That's right. At uh, UC Davis, the, a kind of uh, famous professor of brewing. But also he's English originally, I think. He is, yes. I think I believe he's Lancastrian. Okay. Um, but we don't hold that against him. <laughs> the wrong side of the Pennines, you know. It's completely northerners. They're never happy, are they? It's like, are they from the north or south? North. Oh, you are from the north. That's okay. Which side of the north? <laughs> <laughs> we can't just be letting anybody in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, if you listen to any of the stuff when he's talking about it, he said that actually pub landlords were in more southerly places would actually take a hacksaw and stamp it and cut off the sparkler. Oh, wow. And they'd have to send them to quality control. But it was also so that they could pop beer quicker. You know, I do believe the whole north-south thing is, is dependent on, is kind of a brewery-specific thing. And that's the only thing that I'm aware and of. And then I guess people just developed a certain patterns and tastes, and then it just persisted. Exactly. But, you know, we drink with our eyes first, don't we? And, you know, the visual of a great, big, dense, fluffy head on any beer is a thing it's of beauty. That's what you want to see, to yeah. Actually, that's exactly what Angelo exactly. said when we asked him about the sparkler, yeah. that we drink with our eyes, and it just looks beautiful when you pour it that way. It does, and, you know, it does change the texture yes. of beer. And, you know, you will have less prickle, but you do have that lovely velvet on the top. You know, that makes it, you know, like you've done a podcast about Guinness, and when you are drinking Guinness and you have that dense form on top, that is part of the texture of the drinking experience. So that texture, I think, really helps. When I was living in Durham, I remember there was a little pub right underneath the train tracks, right by the train station, and they used to serve everything on a gravity pour there. No beer engine or anything. Is that place still around? 
It is still around. I do remember one of the only times I was drinking that I was being a bit cantankerous regarding keg beer, which is a bit of a <laughs> sore subject. And I do remember the landlady telling me they would never, ever, ever serve keg beer, but they do now. Oh, wow. So, Look at that. You know, we're all capable oh, yeah. of change. Yeah, I remember we stopped by there when I was over. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it was a, a cool little space, but I was kind of curious. Here in the U.S., Cascale is not very common, but... If I lived in a place like in the UK where it was dominated by cask ale and, you know, in anything that wasn't cask was kind of frowned upon. And, and then you had the other option being, you know, your keg of Carlsberg or Heineken or Guinness or whatever. I can imagine it might be less romantic. So I wanted to get your perception on the way you personally felt about Cascale going back to when you were young through when the craft brewery revolution came and you opened up a brewery to now. I mean, I do find it interesting that you chose to ask me this question, knowing that I'm one of the only breweries in the UK that doesn't do cask beer, which is... uh... (laughs) This is why. Well, you are the best person to answer the question that I just posed. So when I was a young man, sounds like the start of a song. (laughs) (laughs) Caspia was the only way you could find independent and interesting beer and so you know I was a bit naughty I started drinking the pubs at the young age of 16 it's less of a kind of taboo thing in the UK I guess compared to over there I reckon so you know we would finish sixth form college uh, and we finish our lectures and we pile into a couple of the pubs and we just drink and like they must have known we were underage you know (laughs) (laughs) Some of my close friends and I, we used to choose what was on the cask beer, um, the, you know, the real ale. And it was a way of having something that just didn't taste like mass-produced lager or sterile English bitter, the likes of you have John Smith's or you'd have had Tetley's Bitter or Boddington's. They were beers that are extremely sterile and bloody awful, to tell you the <laughs> truth. And that were forced carbs and served on very cold, on a cream floor faucet. Okay, like a Guinness... Yeah, and so they just ended up tasting like metal and misery. And so you, your choices were mass-produced lager, metal, misery, English bitter, Guinness, or if you were lucky and you went into a pub that had real ale and looked after it, you could get that. And a couple of the pubs we used to drink in, they specialised in real ale. So it was kind of like, you know, you had this choice. We were young drinkers learning about how to drink, and, you know, suddenly we had stuff that had flavour. I'm very sensitive to isoamyl acetate, which you know is the banana ester and i remember some very popular english bitters such as old speckled hen and i still do get very little banana esters off a lot, a lot of english bitters and i would pick it out like, oh well, look that's it that tastes a bit banana it's very interesting kind of beer so it was the only kind of place to to get interesting beer cask i don't think i had an interesting kegged beer until i was at university and it was a pub in newcastle used to sell erdinger from germany yes so, so that would be imported keg I didn't see a craft kegged beer until I moved back to the UK. And and then I would say in the whole of the Northeast of thousands and thousands of venues, there would probably be about 15 or 20 that would have an independent keg draft beer on. And the reason for that, again, goes back to the tied pubs. Not only tied pubs dictate what draft beer you are selling, but also quite often you have this situation where... You have what are called pub core pubs or pub company pubs. So you have these post breweries when a lot of the big breweries kind of shut down, collapsed, amalgamated and turned into like the AB InBevs and stuff. They were very quick to sell off their estates. So you have these big, massive companies set up in their place that bought up all this property and they would put you in as a tenant landlord and they would sell the beer to you. 
and you would only be able to buy the beer that they dictated. Cascale was differently, though. So Cascale, you could choose. You couldn't choose what you put in your, your keg lines at all, but on your hand pulls, and this is still the case, you could choose what you wanted from your local breweries. And, you know, during the 90s and noughties, there was a, like a little bit of a microbrewery boom. So you had these little small breweries springing up in the back of sheds and pubs, very much focused on English bitter and doing stuff in the cask because the, the, they didn't have the capabilities of putting it in keg. But more importantly, they didn't have a market. They didn't have a route to who to sell to. No one would be able to take that product if they put it. There was nobody who could buy it, basically. Yeah, because their hands were tied because of the tied pub model system. So cast beer for me always meant independent and always meant that you could find something interesting. You could find something local. It was the only way you could drink local beer, you know. Um, local decent beer. So then what happened when craft beer or microbreweries started sprouting up like Steam Machine and other places that were making interesting beer in a keg? How was that uh, seen by both sides? There is an organization called Camera, the Campaign for Real Ale, who have existed since the 70s. And they were concerned about the kind of disappearing of traditional beer. And so they campaigned to, to raise the profile of it. Our local group, and they have changed hands now, maybe all the old members have died and moved on, I don't know. But uh, when we started uh, eight, nine years ago, uh, we were met with absolute aggression. We, we were met with, how dare you think that you were better than putting your beer into cask? You know, it was like what we did was an affront to their nature. How dare you make something over 5%? What do you think you're doing not making English bitter? How, how dare you? You know, it was slacking off online and all sorts So. The organization, I would say, has changed. Um, and some local camera groups were very kind of craft forward and were very inviting to us, and especially some of the bigger city groups. And the, we were invited to festivals to showcase beer. Because we, we were also, a lot of our beer was um, keg conditioned, so we were doing the same natural process, but in the keg as opposed to in the cask. Because there has been friction, I guess, between real ale and craft beer in terms of not all real ale is craft beer. Not all real ale is independent beer. It is a manufacturing guideline, which is if you have a beer and you stick it into a cask and it undergoes a secondary fermentation, it becomes real. All other beer is imaginary. <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course, but it doesn't matter how big the brewery is that does that, right? Exactly. Exactly. It could be, you know, Fuller's is a big brewery, Green King. I mean, all of the, you just put it into a firk and that doesn't magically make it something different, right? That's our big problem with it, is that it does not differentiate. So our malt salesman, he was, he was the, the, the technical brewer for crisp malt. It was a, a brewer called Carl Heron, who used to be one of the head brewers at Sharp's Brewery. And he said Sharp's Doom Bar, which was, he's a wonderful Yorkshireman, is, is Carl. He's, he's no longer at crisp, but he's a fascinating gentleman to talk to about about all things brewing and malt and stuff like that. You, you'd get on very well with him. He said that when Sharps was bought out, I can't remember which brewery bought them out, but one of the big baddies, one of the big meanies, he said Sharps Doom Bar, which was one of the most popular real ales in the whole of Britain throughout like the 2010s, became a cost-cutting exercise. So much so that he said it would be out of the brewery into a cask within four days, you know. Oh, wow. wow. Okay. From mashing in to leaving the brewery and cask in four days. Four days. That's pretty impressive. Well, or, or <laughs> yes, uh, uh, dispiriting, depending yeah. on how you, how you think about it. Yeah. It's quite a rush. It's an awful beer. And anyone who says it's nice, they're just drinking through nostalgia. And so it's like, but that's real ale. But what we do, if we decide to put beer into a can, 
a false cover, but it came. <laughs> that's not real. <laughs> you see a lot of craft breweries are producing a lot of really good and interesting cask beer. But some of the other issues we have with it are the price. So a lot of the microbreweries of the 90s have always been on a bit of a race to the bottom in terms of pricing. So much so that if I was selling a cask of beer to my local pub, they would expect to pay £60 for the cask. So that's, it's a it's a nine-gallon right. imperial gallon cask, which is about 41 litres. Now, I could sell a 50-litre keg of craft beer of the same beer, and I would be expecting a pub to prepare £160 for that. So there's a pressure to sell cask beer at a lower rate than a regular Absolutely. beer. Absolutely. That has partly been driven by camera. I'm not their friend, especially. I'm not, I'm not their enemy. But part of what camera does is they distribute vouchers to their members for local Weatherspoons branches. So I don't know if you remember Weatherspoons as a pub mm. chip. There's a lot of them all over, isn't that correct? Yes, they're owned by a racist Brexiteer. Sorry, I shouldn't say that. By, <laughs> uh, by a, a, a slightly a slightly marmite character, a slightly marmite gentleman called Tim Martin, who's not everyone's okay. cup of tea, shall we say. And the one good thing he does is he saves old interesting properties from derelictions, such as theatres, cinemas, and stuff like that. And he turns them into pubs that are generic with generic offerings. They sell cask beer very cheaply in there. They sell real ale very cheap. And camera, hand out vouchers for their people to make it even cheaper so a lot of camera members will have an expectation that cascale should be cheap you know right and so that devalues what we do as a craft what we have now is we end up with kind of two markets of cask we end up with the cheap market of cask and we end up with a premium market of cask now it may come as a surprise to you mark that uh, one of your favorite styles of beer is wildly successful in cask at the moment what is it don't tell me hazy ipa the nipper <laughs> Wildly successful, wildly successful in cask. You go into any craft pub, craft bar, and you will find from a local brewery or a popular IPA brewery from somewhere in the UK, you'll find a cask beer of a hazy nipper. Now, they're my least favorite style of beer in the world. What an abomination. Yeah. <laughs> but they work well with cask because nippers aren't refreshing. They're pillowy, they're fluffy, and they're, you know, there's a sweetness to them and they're aromatic. Well, actually, that plays quite well in a cask because, you know, you're knocking the condition out of the beer, you end up with a big fluffy white head and you taste, you know, the fruity tones. And, and that slightly warmer serving temperature actually works very well with a hazy New England IPA. So, you know, it's interesting that they have grown in popularity. I'm not going to plan a trip strictly based around trying a NEPA in the UK on cask. I will say when I was there, I, I had some and, and they do taste really good it's coming good. off of the cask. Yeah, absolutely. So good. Now, Nick, what would be some of the most unusual beers you've found on cask, both on the good side and then ones that maybe it was inappropriate to put on the cask? The first time I ever had an American beer, I guess, that wasn't like good light was Sierra Nevada Pale Ale on cask. That's a classic. But not on cask. I've never had it on cask. Have you, Mark? No. So funnily enough, last year, they were making a big hype about Sierra Nevada being on cask in like 10 unique locations around the UK. I was like, that's so 2005. I've done that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it is weird however it ended up there. Maybe because they knew they were sending to a market where they couldn't sell on, on draft. As, as I say, you know, you didn't get beers on keg. So the only way for them to sell it would have been in cask. 
I wonder if they prepared a cask in California and shipped it over to the UK. That would be kind of wild, wouldn't it? No idea. And like the owner of this pub, I I bumped into him at a beer festival and I asked him about it and he was like, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. So I was like, well, I I don't blame you. It was like, it was quite a while ago. (laughs) It was was lovely. Yeah. I mean, like my mate bought it. We were in rounds and he was, I remember him saying at the time to the bar lady, but why is it so expensive? Does it have bits of gold in it? <laughs> I believe expensive at the time was more than three pound a pint uh, or whatever. It would obviously fall into the premium cask category. So that's very interesting to find a Sierra Nevada on cask. And it sounds like it was a lovely experience. But maybe there's been some other beers that you found on cask that it was not such a great idea to serve it in. Especially recently. I keep We keep seeing like, lagers in cask which oh, yeah, they have really? no business being there in the last few weeks we've seen an oktoberfest we've seen a hellas and we've seen a kolsch oh yeah you shared that kolsch with me what <laughs> the hell that didn't make sense Just offensive yeah so i think every now and again especially the more traditional microbrews the small microbrews we've talked about before they try to do something that'll appeal to the mass lager drinker They'll follow a recipe for a lager or something like that, but then they go and serve it from cask. And no one wants a warm, flat lager in summer. It's just no one. No, or ever, or in winter, or in I have heard horror stories from the US, though, of people putting, like, jelly beans and all sorts into... Oh, now that's something here. We had this mini real cask ale celebration. Lenny Collada, he was actually one of the original proprietors of Barley's downtown that Angelo brews at that you heard earlier on the podcast. Lenny, he has smokehouse over in a different area of town. And he would have annually a mini real ale uh, celebration, which was great because all the breweries would brew a beer for cask and then come out and then people would pay a fee and could taste all the different casks and stuff. It was very nice. You know, just did like the pin, you know, table casks, pop them and go. Well, after time... Rather than brewing a style of beer that would go into a cask, they would take like one of their normal beers to their tap list and then just fuck it up somehow by adding a bunch of food in it, you know, a bunch of orange peel in this, some chocolate nibs in this. And it it would have all these different, I mean, for lack of a better term, just food additives, you know, to the beer, I suppose, more interesting. And I don't really know... What started that tradition? I don't really understand what happened there, but he he doesn't even hold it anymore because it just turned into this conglomeration of, like you said, jelly bean beers and stuff that really people weren't enjoying anyway. Suddenly brewers had access to the vessel that they were putting the beer in. Yeah. Oh, look. It, this, it could this be thing, that. I can put stuff in through this hole. <laughs> Try to do that with a keg, you'll be upset. Yeah, you yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm all for putting things in holes, but not everything needs to go in the hole. I, I cook. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, it was a bit of a novelty. And then I think it got to the point where it had to do a little bit with, you know, educating your customers. But I talked to brewers who are like, well, when we put a traditional thing on cask, it just doesn't sell really well. And if we say that we put some jelly beans or some other thing in a beer, you know, a gimmick. It's just right. a gimmick. It was stupid. But admittedly, though, if you're expecting this off the cold draft tower mm-hmm. that they're accustomed to having an IPA off of that, to put it on cask... You know, they just think, oh, this tastes warm and flat and it's not what I wanted, you know. So I, I would think that's probably why they started jazzing them up because. Yeah, just because people weren't people really aren't used accustomed to it. To it. Yeah. yeah. Here in the US.
So you did ask me before the, the kind of negatives of cask and the, the positives of cask. I would like to wrap up on one, one negative. When I was a young man, my money was hard-earned. Um, you know, I would expect to go out and drink 10 pints because obviously it's English beer, so it was all really weak. Don't do this at home, kids. I would expect six to be meh. I would expect two to be memorable for the right reasons. I'd expect two to be memorable for the wrong reasons. You know, and you would write off 20% of your drinking experience on that night as being bad quality. And that's something that can put a lot of people off cask, is managing the casks in terms of the beer is going off. It hasn't been settled or, you know, the Isinglass, which is the swim bladder of a sturgeon fish that you add to most cask beers to drag the, they have like a negative and a positive charge and it drags the yeast and sediment to the bottom so you end up with a clear pint. You know, if that cask gets disturbed, the, the dead bits of fish float up through the beer. So you end up drinking that and you can taste that. And that's horrific. If the cask is old, the Isinglass can denature. And so it can end up back in the suspension in the cask. So you can actually end up drinking that. And it's pretty horrendous. And I think that's the benefit of the craft beer movement is that we've seen a massive increase in the quality of beer all around. And, and, and cask as well. I think people are far more aware of what quality beer is. Now, I was going to say a positive, wasn't I? I did have one. <laughs> Get dig now, deep. I've got a question for you, Nick, and it has to do with the, I think they call it a cask breather. Yeah, a cask um, aspirator. An aspirator okay. what it is. Aspirator. That's there is the, the argument that oxygen does change the taste of beer. You know, and that's kind of like craft brewers and especially people who are focused on like hazy IPAs said that dirty swear word again, Mark. Sorry. Um, <laughs> we kind of often lie to about, you know, oxygen is the enemy of beer and things like that. It needs to be eradicated every stage. And we all have expensive oxygen meters to, you know, measure the oxygen content and this, that, and it's going into cans. And it's actually the oxidation of that beer is part of the taste of an English bitter. You do not get that same taste if it's not slightly oxidized so my positive was going to be some breweries still do it from the wood such as theekstons who are in yorkshire local to us they serve their beers a lot of their beers actually in wooden casks and these wooden casks go out to trade oh, it's amazing nice. you know and, and and it's part of the positive taste of that is actually the oxidation of that beer it's kind of part of the flavor profile of the beer and it makes it taste different yeah, it's beautiful off of the wood. Angelo brought that up when we were talking to him earlier in this episode. He brought up Theakston specifically. Oh, did he? Just that old, old, yeah, peculiar, old, old peculiar, peculiar wooden cask. Oh, man. Uh, that's beautiful. a wonderful beer. Yeah. Not the same in the bottle. I haven't had that in a while. Well, that's because we're not in the northeast of England Yeah, maybe we can search it out. We can. We used to be able to always find yeah, old peculiar here lately, in the bottle. We, yeah. we should you know look what? For I it. almost picked one up in Little earlier tonight. And I just like, yeah. I decided not to because I thought it wouldn't be the same as on cask. It's, you know, it's a rare treat to find it on cask and in, in, in a wooden cask. Oh, yeah. Now, there is actually a society that's older than camera called the SPBW, which is the Society of the Preservation of Beer from the Wood, who were so upset when beer started going into metal casks, or as they early members said, you're putting the beer in dustbins. <laughs> and they attributed the change from wood to metal as a decline in the quality and, and a decline in British traditions in terms of beer making. But to be fair, nowadays their ideals do align very closely with camera in terms of they want to promote and preserve beer from any kind of hand pull or you know gravity dispense or something as long as it's served to tradition. Yeah. Uh, 
but yes, they, they do have a, a focus on the wood and they're actually, they, they predate Camry by about 10 years. And so, interesting. yeah, like even more hardcore beer conservatives, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the future of cask, it's not going anywhere. I, you know, I would say Camry have won. The campaign for real ale has won. It's, it's it yeah. now more prevalent than when I was certainly when I was a young drinker, there would have been one or two in my local town of Darlington, there would have been one or two pubs serving cask ale. Now, I said the majority of pubs serve cask beer. Not all of it good, but they're still serving it. Some of it from big producers, uh, some of it from local, and some of them, you know, from national. And um, so, you know, I don't what, what the future is. I think what that race to the bottom will have to end. And I think the quality of brewers, the, the you know, the more craft brewers that are producing cask is going to have to benefit that and i think people will have to start seeing it as a premium product and i think if it is seen as a premium product it'll only thrive well i think on the whole it looks rosy for cask ale and we're kind of hoping that it would be just a little bit easier to find over here stateside yeah for sure well nick it has been a real pleasure as always to talk to you to see your smiling face and thank you so much for coming on absolute pleasure Anytime you want me to butcher a few myths and upset some people with my beer knowledge, I'm happy. <laughs> that's great. That hey, that's why we call you first when we need the real straight poop from the UK. <laughs> Did I swear less this time than last time? Yeah, we don't have a meter for that. Okay, okay, just as well. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, cheers. Yep. Cheers. Cheers, gentlemen. Good to see you. Thank you for having me. 